0: So it is a system of identifying, labeling, and then segregating human beings based on beliefs and practices that are well known to be harmful, that are well known now to be scientifically baseless, and are well known to be producing all kinds of inequities in our communities and as a nation.
1: And welcome ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above show that gives you an unstandardized take on education i'm jeffrey garrett one of your co-hosts and i've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher and
2: as always i'm joined by what up family it's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area in Pasadena, California, to be exact. And this, of course, is all the above, your place for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Shout out to anybody that may, might be joining us for the very first time. And shout out to those of you who are part of the AOTA family who's been with us for a long time. We're available, of course, on YouTube and all your podcast streaming apps and all that good stuff. But whatever you're using, if you appreciate these conversations we're having just take a moment please and give us that five uh that five stars or thumbs up or or whatever and in fact jeff if it were up to me i would give a five stars just for that excellent intro that you always do hitting that note when you're like and welcome like you that's that's Uh, you know i'm saying i just want to give you some props on that man because you know (laughs) Uh, what the audience doesn't know is that
1: literally we just got done talking on our first take this morning <laughs> about how I need to start doing vocal warm ups because uh, I can't hit the high notes, man. It's uh, you know it's a little exercise in like how much like a like a fourteen year old can I sound like uh, every episode. Um, so I need to start you know drinking tea and honey. Do doing, doing some, uh, you know, some, some, la 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 la, <laughs> you know, get get my stuff together here before we uh, just jump right into the deep end. So, um, you yeah, know, for, for any uh, music teacher fans out there, if you got any tips for me, uh, please pass them my way. I could I could use it for our for our opening <laughs>
2: stanza of the show. Well, I I think you do a wonderful job, Jeff. And it's been a few years now of you hitting that note at the beginning of every single episode. So, you know, I appreciate that. I appreciate you for that. Um, But yeah, here we are, another full episode of all the above. And this is around the time of year where a lot of folks are either about to start their spring break or are already in their spring break or already finished their spring break. I know mine is a week from now. So any of y'all who are either approaching or enjoying your spring break this year shout out to you whether classroom teacher administrator everybody involved in education because this has been a year this has been a year and unfortunately I think pretty much every year is going to be one of these just very challenging years because that's the world we live in nowadays but Jeff man what any plans for spring break any anything exciting going on?
1: Well, I have to say, Manuel, uh, so here in LAUSD, uh, the, the primary district that I work with, um, we have about two weeks left until spring break. Mm. And uh, so, you know, this March stretch is It's a stretch for people, right? You got, you got a yeah. full President's Day to spring break, no breaks and just grinding. Um, so, yes, my heart goes out to everybody. Uh, let's let's, you know, finish strong. Um, and I will say this is yet another one of those moments, when, Manuel, where I have to remind you and our audience that, uh, unfortunately, uh, I am a 12-month employee. Uh, I shouldn't say unfortunately. I like my job, and I appreciate <laughs> my job. Fortunately, I have a wonderful job, um, and I don't have off school breaks, Manuel. I have a certain number of vacation days a year, and we close on you know federal holidays and that kind of thing. So I might use some time during that week because, of course, it is a convenient time to take some time off while schools are closed. But it also is a convenient time to, like, actually get a bunch of work done because, you know, you're not getting dozens and dozens or hundreds of, you know, of emails every day because school folks like yourself are on vacation, you know, (laughs) chilling at home as they should, as they deserve. And uh, it can be a good chance to, like, get caught up to take a nice you know f- full hour lunch break uh, thing things that are otherwise unheard of uh, in uh, okay. the life of a busy educator so um, so I have not yet decided what exactly I'm doing that week but I think I might take like a day or two you know maybe I'll try and do like a Monday Friday joint that week and uh, get two long weekends um, on either end so we'll we'll see but no okay. no big plans for me. Um, As of yet, but uh, stay tuned, folks. We'll keep you posted.
2: What I'm hearing is that Mr. Super Duper Principal Leader Man doesn't need any breaks because he works (laughs) all year, 12 months, no break, grit, bootstraps, meritocracy. Let's do it. See, folks?
1: There it is. Yes. Grind culture, that's, grind culture, alive
2: and well, alive and well.
1: That's, that's exactly what I meant. If the, the system works, if it's not working for you, the problem is you, <laughs> that's, that's what I meant to say. Yes.
2: There we have it, there we have it. All yes. right, so um, <laughs> full agenda for this episode. Of course, those of you who've been with us for a minute know that our episodes, our full episodes have super dope guests and a look at multiple headlines. So Jeff, what is on today's agenda? Well, Manuel, I will just say uh, we got a good one for everybody, as usual.
1: And, uh, you know, I feel like every time I do this intro to a guest, it feels like I'm like, we got such an amazing guest, and and uh, and that it feels like repetitive. Except, yet again, we have such an amazing guest coming on the show, so I'm just going to go ahead and keep the streak going here. Another super dope guest joining all the above. And uh, today's guest is special for a bunch of reasons. First of all, uh, he's a brilliant educator, Um, He is a person with a long background in teacher education, training teachers to become quality practitioners in the classroom, not coincidentally a former trainer of teachers for none other than your favorite All the Above co-hosts, Dr. Manuel Rustin and Jeffrey Garrett, Uh, way back when, when we were just baby teachers in Boston trying to figure out, you know, how to write on the chalkboard or whatever. Um, our guest today uh, was an instructor in our teacher ed program. Um, he has since gone on to do many other things author, scholar, writer. He is currently the senior director of strategic initiatives uh, for an organization called Knowledge Works, um, where he and they are doing a bunch of advocacy work, policy uh, to- sort of work, um, culture shift kind of work, specifically focusing on issues around. Um, detracking education, right? So uh, removing some of the stratification and barriers we have in place for things like honors and AP courses, for gifted and talented programs, um, and really advocating for a personalized learning, competency-based learning approach as the alternative um, to our traditional systems of tracking and uh, creating stratified, homogenous schools and classrooms. So, uh, really fascinating topic, um, Manuel, because this is one of those things where, honestly, you and I don't necessarily agree, and I don't even know if I like fully agree with myself uh, <laughs> on this issue. <laughs> and Eric definitely doesn't agree with me. So uh, I think I didn't even actually introduce our guest yet. His name is Eric Toshalis, Dr. <laughs> Eric Toshalis. Uh, sorry to bury the lead there, uh, but just a just a brilliant guy, um, really fascinating educator, and I think he's going to come drop some knowledge, challenge me on my, um, you know, on this aspect of my thinking that is. Uh, Probably one of the most like conservative perspectives that I have, if I dare say such a thing. But, um, but uh, it's going to be fascinating, folks. You're definitely going to want to uh, engage with us on this important conversation. So stick around. You definitely don't want to miss it.
2: Yeah, going to be a very dope conversation. And of course, folks know, up first, we have our Do Now, where we take a look at headlines in the world of education. <clears throat> Today's Do Now, we're taking a look at a story about money and another story about incarceration. Money and incarceration. How American, how American. Mm, all right, so folks. very American. Indeed, our do now <laughs> up next. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's do now. Jeff, how are we going to do the do now today? Mm, all right,
1: Manuel, we're going to jump in. And uh, today's format, uh, Manuel, as a person who uh, in our last uh, full episode, I believe we talked extensively about my deep, uh, love and faith in our systems of data-driven instruction. And uh, we must we must know that any good, impactful, purposeful system of data-driven instruction, Manuel, starts with a rich, authentic assessment. So in the spirit of that today, Manuel, we have a pop quiz.
2: Hmm. Okay. I'm not mad at the pop quiz, but that, that data-driven instruction part, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. We talked about that last episode, folks. If you missed that, you know, go back. That, that was the episode said, where, I, where they, I told you that working. just
1: about everything you said was wrong. It was that, it was that <laughs> episode,
2: I think. Yes. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, what's the first quiz question for today, Jeff?
1: All right, Manuel. First question today is, what is better than having $121 billion? Ooh.
2: I guess... Uh, being a troll on Twitter and infusing yourself <laughs> in conversations that you shouldn't be part of. We are talking about Elon Musk here, right? I assume that's uh, what we're talking about. <laughs> we
1: are not talking about Elon Musk. I thought you were going for uh, for your girl, Candace Owens. Uh, who $121 <laughs> billion. She, I know she's getting paid, but hopefully
2: she ain't getting paid that much. <laughs>
1: that Russian oligarch money is good, man.
2: <laughs> yeah, man. Damn. Yeah,
1: maybe, maybe not that much, though. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so the answer to this uh, question, Manuel, is of course $122 billion, Uh. okay? Uh, Which uh, is just like the $122 billion that has been uh, allocated to go to America's public schools uh, in the 2021 American Rescue Plan passed by Congress and proposed by uh, President Biden that has funneled uh, huge sums of cash, huge new sums of cash uh, to America's public schools. Um, And so we have an article today we're gonna dig into, Manuel, that gives us some potentially uh, surprising or maybe even alarming or maybe totally fine news about just how much or how little of that 122 billion dollars is actually being spent uh, by America's uh, K-12 public school system. so. Uh, let's get into it here, Manuel. This article uh, comes to us from L.A. School Report uh, by some good writing by Linda Jacobson. So shout out to Linda Jacobson. And uh, the American Rescue Plan, which, of course, was signed into law a year ago, uh, March 11th, 2021, provided an unprecedented $122 billion for K-12 schools to reopen and rapidly respond to troubling learning and social-emotional deficits that students Face as a result of the pandemic. The law contains a September 2024, so roughly three-year deadline, for uh, districts and um, education agencies to obligate those funds, meaning assign them to an expense and process it. Um, so, uh, However, due to the escalating costs of materials, supply chain delays, labor shortages, etc., less than half of the members of the American Association of School Administrators, which is the sort of national professional association for superintendents and school leader, school system leaders, um, less than half of them report being on track to meet that cutoff date in 2024, according to a survey taken uh, in March by that organization. Um, experts are skeptical that the Biden administration would extend the deadline, fearing that if they did so, they would be faced with questions over whether an extension undermines the original purpose of the legislation, which was to address an emergency. Uh, Marguerite Rosa, executive director of the Edunomics Lab at Georgetown University, added, quote, no one wants to open up that law again because it was not bipartisan. Democrats passed a relief bill using a process known as reconciliation that didn't require any Republican votes. Rosa, who agrees with, uh, who argues, excuse me, that addressing learning loss needs to be district's top priority, added that extending the deadline for things like construction projects would only draw attention to how officials are using the funds for non academic reasons. Now, U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona uh, said recently, I want to make sure that we see. Um, Now masks are off and things are starting to look normal that we do not lose our sense of urgency around not only the gaps that existed before, but the gaps that have been made worse by the pandemic. Thomas Toke, director of Future Ed, explained that just because districts are obligating the funds doesn't mean they won't struggle to fill positions or face backlogs in building materials. His center's analysis showed that rural and high poverty districts are more likely to direct relief funds toward long-standing deferred maintenance and capital expenditures. So, Dr. Rustin, we have a huge influx of cash, 122 billion uh, going on top of the existing funding uh, to America's public school systems and America's public school systems are having trouble spending that money at least on pace, with when they have to spend that money by by 2024. So I think there's a high likelihood that a lot of people might look at this story and be like, what the hell is wrong with these educators? They're always talking about you need more money, and I, we give you more money, and you can't spend it. Uh, so, Manuel, what say you? How should we understand this story, this conundrum here?
2: Yeah, well, this is that... Rare problem in education: the rare problem of actually having money to spend. Um, not very often that we have the money to spend, and here, here we have it. And for me, I think one of the the major problems here is that this is sort of like a <clears throat> the confluence of like decades and decades of underserving and underfunding and defunding our schools. And having schools, especially those who serve in the most marginalized communities, struggle with, like, the basics of, like, materials and facilities, upkeep and all that. And then you have this sudden influx of cash that is ostensibly to address, like, an immediate global crisis of the pandemic. And it's like, okay, so some expect that this money needs to be spent quickly or in on paper, it does need to be spent quickly by, I think, 2024. And yeah, because it's supposed to address an immediate need. But on the other hand, there are these long existing needs that cannot be fully separated from the immediate needs. Like you can't really detangle decades and decades of systemic underfunding from the immediate problems that schools face in terms of addressing this this pandemic. So for example, students really, really, really need a lot more mental health support. They need more counselors. They need more therapists. We need a robust system of support for- students we needed that before the pandemic we really did we need it even more now so yes we need some of that funding to be directed towards that however we haven't really established like a robust pipeline of folks coming into schools in those positions so in some areas there's a shortage of folks available to to hire and to bring in and also this money is temporary like this is a quick cash influx so how long will those positions even be there for are we just going to solve like the mental health crisis in in a few years so there's that that problem of long long standing problems mixed with the immediate concerns of the pandemic and politicians' expectation that like, hey, we gave you this money, do something with it. You're always complaining about not having money. So here's the money, do something. And districts kind of struggling to not just decide how to best spend it, but actually like get rolling on that. Because some of these problems that they're trying to address have been problems for so long and it takes a long time to for example, address like facilities issues and and get the bids out and all that stuff. Plus you have all the inflated costs around uh, supply chain shortages and all that stuff. So it's a a problem, it's a problem. This reminds me of something I saw on television when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I used to watch a lot of 2020 and and Dateline and and those type of Mm. like, I forget what they're called, but those type of shows. As a kid, I don't know why, but I remember they had an episode, and it it really pains me to even remember this. But there was an episode where the the basic question was, what would happen if we just gave a whole bunch of cash to a homeless person? Like, would they be able to to like figure their way out of poverty? And I remember in this episode, they gave I think it was like twenty thousand dollars or something uh, to a man who was living on the street. And long story short, like it it didn't it, did, it didn't save him jeff that influx of cash didn't save him because it turns out it's not just the immediate cash need it's also these long standing uh challenges that landed him in that position in the first place and all the cash in the world can't just solve all the problems that that you're facing so um this kind of reminds me of that like folks will point to this and be like see schools have always always complain about not having enough money. Here's the money and they can't seem to figure out what to do with it or how to spend it. And what the hell, maybe they didn't need the money. Maybe that's just an excuse. And it's like, actually, this is way more complicated than that. And it's just, uh, it's one of those, I, I guess it's good that we have the problem of money to spend, but the expectation that it can be spent really quickly to address needs right away, I don't think that's a very realistic expectation. I know there are, there. I, I, I'm in the classroom every single day. I see needs right in front of my face. I know there are immediate needs. I also know that the system doesn't work that quickly. And I also know that uh, schools are really juggling with uh, like all the different needs that they have and how best to spend this money in a way that fits with the constraints of the timetable for spending it, but also addresses problems in a way that will like have lasting impact, not just some, some fly by night, quick little, you know, okay, we had this cool little tutoring thing for like six months and then the money ran out. So now what are we going to do? So I think it's a much more complex than folks outside of education would believe it to be. But all that being said, I also know that many districts are not doing a very good job of actually communicating with their classroom teachers and their campus staff about how to spend this money. I don't, I honestly don't know what my district is doing with whatever money they got. Maybe they have sent out information. They might've even sent surveys out. I don't remember. Every day is so intense. Every day is so intense. If they've communicated to me, a classroom teacher, what the plan is, I miss that in the litany of like notifications and and all the craziness that I get in my inbox every single day related to just like the just how difficult the, the day-to-day operations of schooling, of teaching and learning are right now. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. What are your yeah. thoughts?
1: Yeah, well, I, first of all, I think your observations is very, very smart there. And uh, one of the things that I think people most misunderstand, in particular by how we fund education in this country, and there, th- this might be true in other aspects of, like, sort of public services that the government funds. I don't, you know, I'm not an expert in social work or, you know, in other fields to know uh, if this is uh, definitively true. But for sure in education, we do these temporary infusions of cash into the system with the hopes that like this is going to make schools improve and we're going to call it school improvement grants and, you know, we're going to Give you research backed intervention programs to implement, and then everything's gonna be great, and all the kids will be proficient by 2014. You know, this sort of a model, right? Um, And this happens both with government funding and also in government funding that comes in response to some sort of crisis usually a lawsuit from you know the ACLU or some kind of civil rights organization uh, and then they end in a settlement that says okay for the next three years we're gonna do this thing for this set of schools and give them a bunch of money but then it goes away after three years right And so what that does like imagine you're you know you're budgeting for your family right? And, and someone came to you and said, "All right, we're going to give you this big infusion of cash, but it's only going to be around for three years, right? What are you going to be able to do with that cash, right? Yeah. You're going to be very limited in a certain sense. You're not going to be able to say buy a new car, right? Because the payments, the financing for your car is is five year financing, right? So like you can't buy the car because you're not going to be able to pay for it after the three years. Or maybe you can only lease the car." And then you have to give it back after three years, right? You're not going to be able to buy a new house because you're not going to have a three-year mortgage on a house, right? So you're very limited uh, in this, you know, imperfect analogy here uh, in what schools can fund. And the reality is some of the biggest things that schools need most are positions and facilities, right? And facilities take a long time to build, <laughs> right? Um, and especially with all these supply chain issues, like you folks out there know if you're ordering stuff from Home Depot or Amazon or whatever, like there's there's supply chain issues trying to get like a new backpack or something, right? They're, let alone trying to build a new school building or a new gym or a new auditorium or a new library or things of that nature, right? Then there's the positions issue. Right now, across the country, we've reported extensively on this show for years, Manuel, about how we have a teacher shortage and an educator shortage, generally speaking, but we especially have one now that there's been a bit of an exodus uh, from, from the profession that has continued and maybe been exacerbated a little bit by the pandemic and a continued, short, uh, continued shortage of supply of new teachers coming into the profession, right? And so... At the same time as we're saying, like, oh, we recognize there's going to be big social and emotional needs from our students. We're going to need more social workers. We need more counselors. We're going to need more, you know, staff who can focus on marginalized populations in school and provide, you know, mentoring and support for them. Um, I'll just give one example. The district I work with most here at Los Angeles Unified literally has thousands of vacancies right now that they can't fill not because they don't either have the position posted or don't have the money to pay for the position, but because there aren't enough people to do the job, right? And like, maybe there's some critique you could offer and say like, well, the district should do a better job with recruitment or, you know, maybe, but also there's still thousands of these positions that are vacant and there's just not enough people to do the work, right? So even in the sense of, big infusions of cash that allow us to do the things we've wanted to do. Hey, we need more folks who can do restorative justice kind of work in schools. Let's create new restorative justice teacher positions. We have to have people we can hire, right? Um, And so that also takes multiple years right, uh, to happen, right, to expand the graduates of teacher education programs in our states and nationwide. So I think there is a, there's both a totally understandable perspective here from folks that would say, hey, look, we gave you all this money. You didn't even spend it. How does that square with the idea that you're telling us you need all this money? That's fair. And you have to understand it in context, right? Which is you put all these strings on the money that don't allow us to actually make long-term thinking decisions that would be um, beneficial to addressing the more systemic needs that we have. And we have lived in the not too recent past through plenty of eras where schools and districts fell off a fiscal cliff because of temporary infusions of federal dollars and they actually did things like all right we're going to hire a bunch more staff we're going to reduce class sizes in our schools or we're going to you know add more programming or you know establish career tech pathways or these sorts of things but then when that funding dries up you're like, okay, we can't sustain this program. We have to cut all these programs, which is both destabilizing to school staffs and communities, and and frankly, can be harmful to kids, right? To strip away adults that they come to rely on and trust. So I think there's a systemic issue behind how we fund schools, man, that we've got to address. Like, let me just give you one little final tidbit here, Manuel. $122 billion sounds like a lot, right? You know what else Congress did in 2021, Manuel? Gave the Pentagon, okay, the U.S. Department of Defense, $765 billion, okay, $765 billion. In a year where ostensibly we ended, okay, ended the war in Afghanistan, brought, brought the troops home, right, theoretically, okay, have ended theoretically the war in Iraq, okay. We're supposed to not be at war and we just gave this one aspect of our defense and military complex, 765 billion dollars. Now, the military is a large institution in this country, Manuel, but I guarantee you, if you stack up all of the teachers, uh, TAs, uh, secretaries, plant managers, principals, assistant principals, if you stack up public school as a public entity collectively, I guarantee you it's orders of magnitude larger than the military. And so we, we have, plenty of money in this country to spend all we want on public education and to do so not in three-year increments, but to say, you know what? If we give the Pentagon $765 billion every year, we can give education more than $122 billion for three years. Okay, so that schools can say, hey, we're going to build a nice new school building for the kids or we're going to hire permanent staff and keep them forever because our kids are going to need counselors and librarians forever. Right. So there's there's a systemic issue here, I think, that um, is perhaps easily missed when talking about this.
2: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And beware the profiteers. Since you're mentioning uh, money spent on military, we know whenever there's a war or even when there's not war, a lot of that money goes to contractors and other folks who just jump in and get the profit from the money being available around this conflict. And um, I do hope, I do hope districts are being cognizant of some of the folks who might be jumping in with opportunities to train their staff on this, that whatever, and grab some quick cash from this influx of money who might not necessarily be very good or any good at those trainings or whatever services they might be selling. So do beware the profiteers who show up when the money is there and available. All right, Jeff, that's just the first quiz question. We have one more, we have one more. And this one, hmm, let's see if you know, let's see if you know this one. Um, Jeff, do you know what a final, delivery station is?
1: Uh, Final delivery station. It sounds like um, when I'm really frustrated and I'm trying to figure out uh, where my package is that I ordered from Amazon and they send me a very unhelpful email that has a 27 character a uh, code for order number X, J, Y, two, nine, seven, eight, six, and some kind of barcode, but not the name of what I ordered uh, or a picture of what I ordered. And they're like, your order is in Toledo. And and then they're like, <laughs> your order is at its final delivery station. And I'm like, I don't know what this means. Just send me my order. That's, that's I think, what we're talking about here. Final delivery station, right?
2: Now that is the second time you've mentioned Amazon already during this Do now. It sounds like Toledo. you and Alexa have some conversations to be had because uh, yeah, man, I sent (laughs) sent some frustration there between you and uh, Alexa, but in any case Uh. that, yeah, that might also be a final delivery station. In this case, um, a final delivery station in the sense of the end of pipelines. So of course pipelines transport materials, maybe fuel, maybe oil across long distances and uh, that pipeline ends somewhere and that's where it gets delivered to the consumer. And in this case, when we're talking education and we're talking pipelines, that pipeline, that final delivery station often is the prison system. And this is a story here about juvenile youth. So youngsters who are in juvenile facilities and the type of education that they receive, at least here in Los Angeles County. So we've talked a lot about a lot of different um, issues in education, a lot of different populations in education. And I don't think we've spoken very much about education within juvenile hall. So this is a story that uh, I think is pretty interesting in terms of some of the parallels and some of the differences we see between schools inside of juvenile facilities and schools that uh, you and I work with a little more often. So. This comes to us, actually, I got an email from the LA County Board of Supervisors about this report, but um, I went over to EdSource, who I knew would have an article about it because that's what they do. They stay up on the latest news in education. And uh, Betty Marquez Rosales wrote up a story about this report that um, details a citizen's review of education offered to youth in Los Angeles juvenile facilities. Now, it's a 14-page report and it presents observations, findings, and recommendations based on months of classroom observations and interviews with staff, students, and education advocates in the Los Angeles County Office of Education Juvenile Court Schools. Now, the report offers four key findings, which it explains through individual anecdotes and overall observations. And of course, we'll link the report below this, but in any case, their findings include that most classrooms lack a culture of learning. The quality of instruction is generally far below expectations. Staffing of classrooms creates barriers to learning and a few on-site school leaders exhibited the ability and intent to improve instruction. Now the, the report states, quote, the attitude of most students was either apathetic or antagonistic towards learning activities. Most teachers seem to believe that the minimal work that they provided was the best that could be reasonably expected of these students. Now, as for why students appeared so apathetic, the report attributes student resistance primarily to the carceral setting and poor and inconsistent classroom instruction. It reads, quote, the structure of the program and practices of the teachers make it clear that avoiding disruptions and going through the motions is what is generally, genuinely valued, end quote. Some recommendations in the report include to empower effective principals, teachers, and youth to collaborate with each other and the public to lead site-specific improvement efforts to integrate arts, cooperative learning, project-based learning, and cultural relevance into classroom instruction, and to take better advantage of low staff-to-student ratios in the lesson planning. Now, the report is based on observations of a four-person committee uh, that was done over a course of five months. And to be fair, the superintendent of the County Office of Education, uh, Deborah Duardo, says that, quote, these findings are not based on facts, but on speculation and conjecture. So Jeff, uh, somewhat rare, I think rare, look into education and into schools within the juvenile uh, facilities, the juvenile court system here in Los Angeles County, and I want to know what some of your thoughts were upon reading the uh, findings in this report.
1: Mm, yeah, Manuel, uh, fascinating story, and I I have kind of conflicting feelings about this story, to be honest, because on the one hand, I feel like just very uh, confident that what this report is naming is probably very true about the kind of um, state of despair of public education as as it exists in youth lockup facilities here uh, in California and frankly, probably everywhere. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert at uh, public schooling that takes place behind bars in this country. But let's, you know, make no mistakes about it. Like the most dehumanizing places that exist in the United States of America are detention facilities, right? Prisons, juvenile halls, immigration detention camps, like where we are incarcerating people and essentially herding them like, you know, like cattle and, uh, you know, treating them like, you know, some sort of, second class indentured servant slave kind of condition, right? Um, uh, These are awful places, frankly. And uh, to try to mesh that setting with the nature of what public education should be, I think is a monumental task, right? Um, like there was a line in the article that said something in a critical way um, of the schools that like, well, the kids, they don't seem like they're engaging in a love of learning, they're just here because they want to graduate from, from high school. And there's part of me that says like, yes, of course, in any school, it should be a very sad thing to, uh, to have students not experiencing joyful learning. And on the other hand, they're in freaking prison, man. Like It's not a joyful place. And the, the the goal, the inspirational stuff is like, how do I get out of here and get my life in a place where I can, when, ho- when I can hopefully not come back here, right? Because chances are I didn't wind up here because I had a really calm, stable, well-supported life at home. Right. Chances are I'm here because of some kind of traumatic situation that I experienced as a young person that was very likely no fault of my own and got me caught up in some, you know, some B.S. And now I am here right in this system that is controlling, brutalizing, dehumanizing, right, where I'm in physical danger on a regular basis, where there's abusive conduct from law enforcement officers right? And like, I'm sure there's some good people in the system doing their best to try to bring some humanity to it. But like, this is the nature of what we're talking about, folks. Like, we ain't going to have cuddly, huggy, you know, lovey-dovey school behind bars. I'm sorry. I just don't know that that's realistic. And the fact that students would be like, look, I'm here to get my diploma makes sense to me, right? That like, Getting that educational advancement is a very concrete, practical, like, when I get out, how am I going to feed myself, right? When I get out, how am I going to be able to earn money and have housing so I'm not homeless and having to rob people and wind up back here, right, or someplace worse? And getting a high school diploma is a huge step in that direction, right? Um, Could be the difference between making minimum wage and making something that gives you at least a little bit more that you can help provide for your family in some way or you know something of that nature so you know there's a part of it to me the Matt, well that reads a little bit like yeah we can crap on that aspect of the school system but also like the problem here is maybe the carceral system (laughs) not that like we just don't have good enough schools behind bars okay we probably also need better school behind bars let's be real (laughs) okay I haven't spent a lot of time there but I can imagine it needs to be much better. And this report certainly gives us a lot of uh, food for consideration about what that could look like. But I think, you know, to the extent we wanna solve the like, there's not enough joyful inspiration in this environment. Yeah, well, maybe we need an alternative to youth prisons, <laughs> okay? Yeah. Uh, like that might be the conversation that isn't being had in this piece.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with you right there. I mean, these are 13, 14, 15 year old, 16 maybe a few 17 year olds. We know in California, they like to um, push, push the 17 and 18 year olds up in the system. So um, yeah, this is just so sad, so sad to read about this. I've had several students who, you know, pop up during the school year who just got released from a facility like this. And usually I have zero context as to what their uh, history was in terms of if they had any classes in there, what classes they had, um, how they ended up at, at my school of all schools, like, I've never gotten any context and I've always felt so so sad for them because obviously adolescence is so difficult already and whatever conditions that uh, these young folks were experiencing before they went into the system, I imagine weren't, weren't great. And then the system itself, like reading about these classrooms, I guess I'm not surprised at all because it's pretty much kind of how I pictured a lot of Uh, classes being in juvenile facilities, Um, just like, you know, uh, worksheets and simple, simple activities and not much more beyond that. Um, So I guess I'm not surprised, but it just makes me so sad because these folks are so young, and have obviously the whole, the whole world, the whole future ahead of them. And to not have that loving atmosphere that you just alluded to, not having a a sort of school that actually meets their needs, it's just just really heartbreaking. And obviously, you know, if we even just look at it in a number sense, obviously the the, the last story, we're talking about budgets and numbers, like these are folks who like, if we don't help them, that it's only going to cost the entire system so much more because they're gonna be in and out. Like the the students that I have had in my history um, as a regular high school teacher um, come out of the system and enter my class, they normally didn't stay on our campus for very long. One that comes to mind, he was like right back in the system pretty quickly. Um, We failed to meet his needs, you know, and it's just like it's going to cost you on the back end when these folks are in and out and continuing to like not find uh, a loving, stable place in society. So some of the recommendations in there to me, I'm like, hell yeah, like we need that in schools, like the parallels between um, what was reported in in this story and what we see in, in certain schools. The parallels are like just so stark. Like low ex- expectations for students, students not seeing the value in what's being taught. Um, recommendations that we have more arts, we have more um, more lessons around culture and around awareness and around criticality and criticality and all that. Like yes, we need that everywhere, and the justice system, uh, the juvenile court system is is no exception. So yeah, man, just really makes me sad for those kids, yeah. man.
1: Yeah, 100 percent, man. And I, you know, I think you're right. I hope I didn't give in my comments there the impression that, like, I don't think those students deserve that kind of education. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, you I, didn't.
2: But I'm sure somebody <laughs> not and nobody listening, I don't think would think that either. But I'm sure folks who saw this story were like, well, yeah, well, they shouldn't have been a gangbanger. Right. That's what they get. And like I'm sure obviously there's folks out there that yeah. think that.
1: Yeah. Well, I, so to those folks, let me just say one quick thing in closing.
2: Oh, they ain't listening to our show, but go ahead.
1: Well, to anyone who even might have like a little voice in the back of your head that's like, well, I don't know, is this really like, of all the things we can care about in education, is this the priority, right? And I think there is a, um, you know, that type of mindset or thinking also reflects some of the ways in which we just write certain groups of people off and dismiss people right When you look at the other side of the coin like who are the kids who are incarcerated in this country Manuel And there's I'm sorry I don't have the like the actual data to cite right offhand but I've uh, have some familiarity with uh, data on this issue man and it is overwhelming the percentage of those students who were formerly students in special education who were students who came out of the uh, children who grew up in the foster care system, Um, children who uh, experienced chemical dependency issues, right, and got caught up in in the criminal justice system because of substance abuse and mental health issues, LGBTQ kids who are, you know, kicked out of their house and have to resort to, uh, you know, to, a legal means in order to figure out a way to survive in the world, right? Folks who are engaging in sex work or other kinds of things like that, right? Like this, these are the people by and large, it's not just like your neighbor's kid who's like a bad seed who robs people or whatever, like that, that's not who's filling the youth prisons in this country. And we're talking about young people who have had a real hard go at life because of the ways our system has failed them. And they might be, you know, angry and rough around the edges and hard to deal with in some ways. Right. But like these are folks who have been the, the most marginalized among the marginalized. Right. Um, and so to then turn around and and offer them incarceration and crappy schooling. Right. Uh, just perpetuates that cycle that you were naming there. And that certainly parallels what I saw. Um, You know, in my years as as an educator as well, like kids who came in and out, right, um, of the system. And it is anyone with eyes can see how this system perpetuates itself. Um, And this, you know, I think speaks volumes about the work we have to do to interrupt these kind of cycles.
2: Yeah, man for sure for sure and act- actually this has i guess nothing to do with what you just said there but i'm just thinking about my school and my experience having had so many students pop up during the school year who are fresh out of some juvenile facility that hasn't happened in a while and i don't know if to attribute that to the gentrification that's happening in the city that i teach in or something else but it hasn't happened in a while so i do wonder um how the dynamics of of all of this are changing as we see the housing crisis that we talked about i think last episode or the episode before uh, push more and more families out and away from city centers and just in any case man it's not a california problem by itself as you said it's this these uh findings probably could have been found in juvenile facilities across the country um i've certainly have never heard of ju- juvenile facilities that were doing awesome in the world of education so um yeah man just uh we definitely have to do better by our young people because they deserve better for sure so all right folks That was it for today's Do Now. Money and prison bars. Again, very American, very American. So let's talk about tracking. All right, we're gonna shift gears here and bring on a super dope guest, Dr. Eric Tashalis, to talk about um, the sorting and categorizing of students based on their maybe ability, maybe not, um, as they get shifted into gifted and talented or AP or something other, uh, and um, the dynamics of that and, and all that, all that. So that's in our seminar coming up next. Stay tuned.
1: All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar, and thanks so much for joining us today. We are just absolutely thrilled to have with us uh, a fantastic guest, uh, Dr. Eric Toshalis, um, whose resume and accomplishments we'll get to in just a moment, but I think it's important also to call out uh, that today's episode represents, I think, the first time that the three of us have been back in a shared space uh, since about 2003 when uh, yours truly and Dr. Manuel Rustin were just baby teachers trying to figure out how to, how to plan a lesson and how to manage a classroom and uh, benefiting from the wisdom, experience, and good teachings uh, of folks like Dr. Toshalis uh, who are helping us in our teacher education program. So uh, Dr. Toshalis, welcome uh, to all the above.
0: Thank you, gentlemen. Psyched to be back in a space with you two. Uh, Just absolutely thrilled to see the kinds of leadership and the kinds of impact and the kind of things that you all have done with your careers, the kinds of dedication you had to kids and communities, and the conversations you're inspiring here. I'm honored to just be back in your circle of influence and psyched to hang out with you today. Thanks for having me
1: all right well let's uh introduce you in a little more detail to our guest um over the last three decades dr eric toshalis has served as a public middle and high school teacher a mentor teacher a teacher union president teacher educator community activist curriculum writer researcher and university professor Um, he is also an author who has lived and worked in the states of california massachusetts oregon and idaho He has been recognized as Teacher of the Year by his school district in Santa Barbara County in 1997 and awarded the Certificate of Distinction in Teaching by Harvard College in 2002. Eric has long focused on what it takes to educate adolescents and adults who bring a diversity of cultural, ethnic, gender, linguistic, racial, sexual, and socioeconomic insights. He is the author of the award-winning book, Make Me, Understanding and Engaging Student Resistance in School, uh, that came out in 2015, and is co-author of the widely used text, Understanding Youth, Adolescent Development for Educators uh, in 2006, both published by Harvard Education Press. Eric received his BA teaching credential and masters from the University of California, Santa Barbara, his second masters from Harvard Divinity School and his doctorate from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He has been an instructor at Harvard, a faculty member in the Department of Secondary Education at Cal State Channel Islands, and has served as director of a master's program at the Graduate School of Education and Counseling at Lewis and Clark College. Dr. Toshalis now serves as the Senior Director of Strategic Initiatives at Knowledge Works. Dr. Eric Toshalis, so great to have you on the show, and I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for the first question.
2: Yeah, Dr. Tashalis, in the building, man. It's been a very long time. I believe eighteen years or so since I last saw you in the back of the classroom while I was <laughs> student teaching and you were filling out the little observation notes. And I don't know if you remember that the, the carbon copy forms with your with your notes about my yep. student teaching. I still have I still have those. I still have those. Um, very very nice to see you again. Very blessed to have you on all of the above. And today's topic is a real Hot button issue around tracking. Now, before we uh, launch the conversation, we thought it'd be worthwhile to get some clarity of language around tracking and, and what it is and how it manifests in our school. So, I want to start by reading something that you wrote that's posted on uh, Knowledge Works, and we'll put we'll put the link below. But um, in this piece, you wrote, "Quote: When it comes to tracking, it's inaccurate to say inequity is a symptom. It's not really even an outcome." With tracking, inequity is a principle of design. The system is working as intended. That's why we need to dismantle it. Now, can you talk to us a little bit about exactly what you mean by tracking and and how it shows up in our schools? And then maybe a little more clarity about this idea that inequity is a principle of design when it comes to tracking.
0: Appreciate that question. Yeah, it's good to get uh, clear terms out in front. Um, Tracking, also known as ability grouping, also known as streaming, as it's called in the UK and in um, uh, Australia and um, uh, New Zealand, those sorts of places. It's basically the practice of labeling, ranking and sorting human beings based on their perceived capacity to perform in what is typically a narrowly defined set of contexts. It's typically based on reductive assessments that are widely known to be biased and or it's based on teacher nomination procedures that play into racist categories of what and who is valued in school settings. So it is a system of identifying, labeling, and then segregating human beings based on beliefs and practices that are well known to be harmful, that are well known now to be scientifically baseless, and are well known to be producing all kinds of inequities in our communities and as a nation. Um, It's also a fixed mindset infrastructure. It's a way of creating specific policies, practices, and procedures that are born of ideologies and practices that are that we know are damaging, but we retain them because they benefit those who most designed it and who most direct it today. Um, It's also really rooted in factory models of education that sought to separate the captains of industry from those who would be valued basically only for their labor. And it's really, and we can talk more about the history of this, it's inextricable from eugenics and racist beliefs about which subpopulations are believed to carry really the greatest potential to be leaders versus all the others. Um, And in my perspective, and I'm building on the scholarship and leadership of Jeannie Oakes with her book, um, uh, Keeping Track, and then a follow-up Beyond Tracking, and Kevin Wellner at 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 Boulder and uh, Daniel Lozen and Center X at UCLA and a lot of stuff that they do and all of the major professional organizations that support math educators, English language arts educators, science educators, social studies educators, all of which has public statements saying that we need to reduce and eliminate tracking in our schools. All of them are on board. The NEA is on board of that. The AFT is on that. AACTE for technical education. All of those folks are, are on On the record as saying we need to get rid of tracking and yet it's a primary mechanism dominating the way our schools are set up and it's the way that the dominant minority uses to or the way the dominant minority secures its unearned advantage so i would argue that if we're going to really think about tracking honestly and clearly we need to think not just about our own individual trajectories, although those stories are really important, but we need to think about the kinds of harms that it does in our communities and the logics that it's based on and how much of that is just on shifting sands that we can no longer trust. It, it really, from a capitalist perspective, it's a way to ensure that schools produce an underclass of underprepared, unskilled, fearful, risk-averse Compliant laborers that keep wages low and profits high in a capitalist economy—that's the way that it functions. And I know, and I believe, and I've seen that we can do better, particularly when we commit to getting rid of it, not just playing at the edges of it.
1: Yeah, Doctor Toshalis, you're you're speaking to my uh, intellectual soul uh, <laughs> as you as you sh- uh, share those words there, and um, I am partly why I'm so grateful that you're here today is this is perhaps one of the, you know, one of the main issues in education where I think Manuel and I differ in our our opinion and perspective. And uh, frankly, when I hear you say those things, it sounds right. It sounds sort of morally and philosophically right, and I want to agree. Um, And yet, personally, and for many people I know, have had lived experiences with education where where perhaps a different uh, perspective on the issue uh, has come from the path that we have walked. So, uh, for example, in, in my case, um, you know, I uh, was a kindergarten student in a, in a regular, you know, traditional public school classroom Um, I was being, you know, severely uh, under-challenged, let's just say, right? I came into school, I knew how to read, I, you know, knew all my letters and shapes and sounds and whatever other sort of, uh, you know, sort of fundamental curriculum was in place in the school, and as a result, I was bored, very hyperactive child, and I got into a lot of trouble, right, and was definitely on an educational path that was going to a very negative space. Now... We can definitely uh, say lots about and agree <laughs> about the the sort of larger problem with that equation. Um, but what happened in my educational trajectory was moving to um, a, you know, so-called gifted and talented magnet program where I was challenged um, with academic work, where I had peers who were also pushing me um, academically. And my entire experience as a student was transformed Because of moving from an environment where I was not being challenged at all and not having my sort of needs and readiness um, for learning, uh, understood, respected and, you know, responded to, to an environment where that was the default in every classroom setting that I that I moved into. And um, and that resulted in me thriving um, as a very young person, as a student. And so I think there's a, you know, maybe a a tough question in there that I would love to get your perspective on here, which is how would you respond to people like myself or others who would say not only that there is evidence all around us of that, of tracking in this way, supporting many students, but also having uh, in some ways like a liberatory aspect to it, particularly for folks of color or communities of color, where a lot of times those Uh, you know, types of learning spaces were
0: denied to folks. So how how would you respond to that? So a couple of things in the setup, totally acknowledge the fact that gifted and talented education and that label and the access and the resources and the opportunities that were then provided to you after an unfulfilling experience were the kinds of pathways and pacing and the kind of thing that opened up doors for you. Totally understand that that's work. That's why those systems are set up that way. Um, I do not believe, however, that gifted and talented education is a way to lift up BIPOC communities. It does the opposite. That you were an exception to the rule shows that what it creates within communities is that I'm going to get what's mine ethic, right? And that is not a justice strategy. That is a strategy for dividing communities and getting people to think that it's a zero-sum game that begins with the fact that your experience started in a classroom where the teacher was not supported enough or was not held accountable enough to provide differentiated possibilities for you to get enrichment and acceleration while staying in a heterogeneously grouped classroom. So the solution was rather than to support teachers to do that across the system was to create a little gate Gifted and talented education being literally a gate, open that gate a squeak and let a couple of folks in to go in and do that while basically sustaining that system, which is designed to secure advantage for people who already have class privilege, race privilege, and all the other privileges that get associated with that. So I would argue that gifted and talented education is not a liberatory strategy. It never was. It wasn't designed to be that, and it doesn't function that way today, that there are little exceptions out there and i would argue that your experience is an exception because behind you are thousands of other students who didn't get that extra thing you can have a magnet school but that doesn't change the fact that the system is operating without that magnet without that attraction without acceleration and enrichment for all gifted and talented education had as its origins i mean it started in Charlottesville, Virginia, and by Charlottesville, Virginia, I don't mean Asia. Uh, Char- I mean that Charlottesville, the one that we know of from Unite the Right and where folks were killed in the street and all the nasty stuff that happened as a result of that. It started. Gate classes originated there right after the Brown v. Board decision forced the city to segregate to integrate its schools, i.e., separate does not equal separate does not mean equal. In one article, there's a New York Times did a whole thing with ProPublica where they researched what happened there as the foundation. You can find it online. I can send you the link for it. But after decades of resisting court order desegregation, Charlottesville school officials integrated their schools in the 70s, but they established a separate school within a school program was essentially for white kids who had teacher nominations and test scores to be considered gifted. And they invented the term gifted in order to bestow using a special education language and some of the stuff that was emerging at about that same time to say, we need a separate program for these poor kids who aren't getting what they need in the regular classrooms, excusing the fact that the teachers who were providing those instructions weren't ever supported to change what they were doing. Instead, they created a school within a school based on now disproven theories of intelligence, which ignore how we develop and how we grow as learners across the lifespan. This preserved a segregated system as it does today, and it excluded those who are always going to be best served and best inspired by the growth mindsets rather than fixed mindsets, you know, including the leading mathematics educator in the United States, Joe Bowler at Stanford, who has long been showing for decades now how we can detrack track mathematics classrooms to the benefit of all students, and it doesn't harm those at the highest levels, and there's research to support that. So the educational redlining and the opportunity hoarding that is gate then spread like wildfire across the K-12 ed system because all of the folks who were interested in not being in integrated schools found a way to keep a school within a school and sustain that disproportionality and outcomes that happens when we label some kids as gifted as if you can test someone in the second grade that for their lifelong potential, right? Can we do that? I don't think we can and should we? Um, and it's based on white middle class norms about what is valued in school and what types of things we want to test on as if a seven or eight-year-old can determine their lifelong potential at that point. And if you fast forward to today, you have an entrenched sector of families in most communities that expect their school to secure their kids and their family's advantage by labeling, ranking, and sorting their kids into the higher tracks. And then you get other folks, other families, even BIPOC families who see that as a way up. And I get it, get it, get what's yours, but get what's mine and try to get that advantage is not a justice strategy. I want to underscore that. It is not. What that is, is a way to be divided. And we've seen that even what's happening in San Francisco with the recent vote and the recall of candidates. We see huge racial divisions happening because of the way that some subpopulations believe that the way that they're going to sustain their advantage is through these accelerated programs that those kids, however you want to define that, aren't good enough to be in, but we are. That is a huge division that we should be troubling all the way through. And the way we trouble that is by troubling the assumptions that there is such a thing as giftedness, and there isn't, there is such a thing as genius, and there isn't, there is such a thing as talent that doesn't happen outside of support and access and opportunity and time and all of that, there isn't. And then we disturb those things and we destructure and destabilize those things so that we can actually create heterogeneous democratic classrooms that help all kids flourish. So I don't buy all of the premises even though I acknowledge the fact that it indeed helped you, but it isn't a strategy to help communities.
2: Yeah, the, the history teacher in me loves that history lesson, um, looking back at the the early early era of GATE in its development and, and its role. And the, the in-school or school-within-a-school school model, I'm thinking right now of, of two schools that I'm familiar with, not in my district, that do have within them uh, an academy or, or an aspect of their school that you have to apply to get in and have these grades and have this and have that. And that is the, the segregated area of the school where the most advanced, quote-unquote, advanced kids are. And it they do not resemble the racial demographics of the rest of the school. And now those schools say they're in a position where, like if they got rid of that school within a school, they would lose folks, their parents would take their kids elsewhere, and that would have an impact on enrollment. So it's kind of just there and yep. stuck there, and it's not going anywhere. Yep. And you know, one, one of the difficulties in discussing tracking with folks, especially folks outside of education, or well, I should say folks who are not uh, professional educators, is this idea that it seems like it's a welcome presence outside of school. So if you look at sports, we have JV, we have varsity, we have intramural sports, and when you look at orchestra, when we look at just a, a host of other activities that, that people do across the country, we have, a, a bit of tracking in terms of folks' actual talent level, skill level, and we don't look at those and say, "Oh, the fact that we have a JV and a varsity, or that we have inter, intramural and JV, is is somehow oppressive or somehow inequitable." We kind of just seemingly agree that, like, "Oh, yeah, you you know, based on this, the student skill level and talent level, they're ready for the next level of competition, and they move on up." So, how do we square the seemingly welcome presence of tracking in all these other areas with? What you're saying here about the the damaging and inequitable roots of tracking when it comes to academics?
0: Yeah, I hear you about that.
2: The, you know, the
0: people often trot out the the whole, well, what about sports or what about band or or what about this uh, competitive program that we're putting these kids in or whatever? All these extracurriculars that seem to function okay by pseudo labeling, pseudo ranking, pseudo sorting. Um, I'm going to say that's a huge conflation that doesn't stack up. Um, so I'll, I'll start here, JV basketball is developmental, you, you can get on varsity if you practice and have time and have mentoring and have access and have a body that can do the things that you ask of it, okay, we're fielding athletic teams to compete against other teams and the objectives and the practices are used in that setting and all extracurriculars are and should be different because those things are extracurriculars, they're not compulsory. It isn't ethical and compulsory education to label rank and sort kids away from opportunity. They're required by law to be there. Then why is the law setting it up so that some never get opportunities to be successful in post-secondary, much less be successful in secondary? JV is still an opportunity. It's not a dead end. You can get into varsity. You cannot tell me that the kids who are in remedial college prep are on a path to AP calculus and a path to secondary success. Yes. That is some serious BS. That is not going to happen for most kids. Those are not routes to success. Remediation and be put into those lower programs are not opportunities for them to get better and then get back into the mainstream or upper echelons of what's offered in the school. No, those are ruts, the root, the ruts, not roots, right? Same with chairs and band, right? Like, let's say you go for first chair, but you get fourth chair. That's a marker of a skill and a very specific medium. The fourth chair can still be the first chair right again if they have the support the time the mentoring access to resources and all of those things It's a form of assessment with a clear criteria to improve. They're not in fourth chair forever. They could move up if they had the proper context around them to do that. It doesn't excuse the harms that do come from such competitive models. I don't think that having chairs and band is fully innocent. And I don't think that JV basketball and varsity basketball is innocent of some of the problems that can come from those sorts of labels. But if you're a freshman and you're on JV, That's kind of where you should be, right? Like you got a year or two. If you really get you bring your game and maybe you get a little bit taller, like and it's basketball, then maybe you can move into varsity. And coaches are constantly talking to you about what it's going to take to get varsity, and you can see the criteria to get there. Put a kid in algebra, in college prep algebra, not in the honors algebra or not in the AP track or whatever. People aren't saying this is what you need to get out of this. This is how you can get to those classes. No, they know that they're in a rut and they're not getting out of it. So the comparison falls down pretty quickly. It's very different goals, very different contexts, with very different lifelong material effects. If you went out for JV basketball, Okay, but you never made it to varsity, but you're still taking AP classes and college credit going classes and you're in the higher echelon and you got the name gifted on the way there like you're going to be fine. But if you're playing varsity basketball, but you're in only remediation classes, doors are slamming shut in your face every single day for your life trajectory. So making those conflations, I can see that there's some easy logic there, but it doesn't stack up. We got to remember that the tracks that we establish for those kids do not lead them to post-secondary possibilities for middle-class sustaining careers. They lead to low-wage options and all sorts of mental health considerations that accrue as soon as you label somebody as being, that kid is gifted, fixed mindset and all the toxins that come with that, and that kid over there is ungifted and not talented. I want to say, and I know that you two would believe this, every single kid has a talent, a set of talents and a host of gifts that are worth exploring and enhancing and challenging and improving. And they, a lot of kids, most kids don't even know what they are yet. And to have those labeled and reduced so early in their life trajectories and to have material effects accrue to that, that labeling and ranking and sorting is dangerous. It's unethical, it's harmful, and it's not the same thing as JV basketball and chairs and band. So, some, something that
1: you're making me think a lot about, uh, Dr. Toshalis, is the is kind of the so what do we do about it question, okay. right? And um, the you know, I from from what I have seen through you know through reading and uh, just career experience with folks, is the primary solution that people drive to. Is uh, is one that says we need to you know create and preserve heterogeneous learning environments, um, and then the work of ensuring that students are receiving the right level of challenge, of supports, of push, and you know, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, is on the teacher, right? Um, and most teachers operate alone um, in the classroom with, say, 25 to 35, um, you know, youngsters in their care, uh, and presents the teacher with a massive challenge to be able to differentiate, personalize, etc. cetera, uh, to actually enact the kind of learning that I, I think I hear you implying. And so I'd love to, to kind of unpack this a little bit with you and, and through some of your writing and uh, seeing some of your work, you have advocated for uh, personalized learning, uh, competency-based learning as really being sort of the... Uh, perhaps one of the primary modes of instruction that needs to be enacted in schools in order for us to bring to life a more equitable, more anti-racist pedagogy and set of practices in schools that can address the the very many concerns you've raised about our our system of tracking. Um, And again, I would say that sounds great, but what does that actually look like in terms of implementation how do we, in the system that we uh, you know that we have or the resources that we have in our systems, how do we actually enact that, bring that to life um, in our k twelve systems?
0: straight up, great question. love it because you're thinking about like, okay, let's just say for the second that I am agree with what you're saying, but I'm going to still going to chew on it, Toshalis. Like, I hear you. I'm going to chew on it a little bit. <laughs> let's say for the sake of agreement that I agree with what you're saying. Now show me what it looks like to make that stuff happen in the actual systems. And that's the appropriate question for anyone who is in a position of leadership such as yourself to ask, and I'm glad you asked it. So I would say, first thing, just about my own location in the field, like I, I am essentially an evangelist for competency-based education, what we at KnowledgeWorks call personalized competency-based learning. Um, But the field also calls mastery-based learning, proficiency-based learning, and it has a lot of different terms depending on where you go. Um, But I'm an evangelist for it, not because I work for a a foundation and a a nonprofit that does that work. Um, I'm an evangelist for it because I have been in a bunch of classrooms with very, very like. Credit seeking 19 year old homeless speech impediment, um, uh, student of color who's also a uh, gender fluid, um, who's trying to in a credit recovery program, sitting down next to that student for an hour and then another 45 minutes in another class and following him, and just engaging that student and saying, how do you know? What are you doing today? How do you know what you need to do? And how do you, what are you working on? And what are you trying to get better at? And what's most important to you and you're learning? trajectory today and what's your relationship with the students like and to watch what what happens to those kinds of students not to mention quote-unquote regular students who are who don't have all of the problems with socioeconomic class or being racially marginalized or having a a disability or a learning differences watching both of those sorts of subsets of students absolutely on fire in personalized competency-based learning environments and then going up I was like real really and then going to another place and watching it and another place and watching it once i saw what that happened and i watched what teachers became how they became th- how they fell in love with their kids they fell in love with their curriculum they fell in love with their school they fell in love with their community when they started to do these things i i turned on that stuff because um i saw it happen i'm a i'm a i need to see it in order to believe it once i saw it now i believe it and then i started to read the research and i wanted to watch it happen and i came around to it But I want to say PCBL is not the magic, you know, personalized competency-based learning is not the magic bullet here. I'm also a big believer in problem-based learning and project-based learning, expeditionary learning, uh, universal design for learning, individualized learning plans. Um, If you look at Harvard's success planning work, if you look at UConn's school-wide enrichment models, if you look at Spring Points academic conferencing, if you look at the new teacher projects, Learning Acceleration for All and different manifestations of blended learning and flipped classrooms and uh, workplace apprenticeship programs and mentoring and tutoring programs and early college high schools and Acceleration Enrichment for All, all of these are proven methods that don't rely on segregation to claim that they're meeting all students' needs, right? Right. All of those particular approaches don't start with the assumption that if some kids don't want to learn or if kids are struggling, they need to be over here. No, 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 no. When kids are struggling, they need extra scaffolds and extra supports in mainstream environments. And we will never get there as long as what we understand to be pedagogy, instruction, assessment and classroom management to be one teacher in charge. As an independent contractor in a classroom by themselves with little meaningful professional development over a 30 plus year career um, and basically zero accountability for doing anything other than being a warm body. Like we're never going to get there as long as teacher education produces teachers with that expectation of what the job looks like. And unions, and I'm a former union president, and a district administration and leadership and our own cultures within schools allow that kind of beliefs about what teaching looks like to persist. You can't differentiate instruction in those kinds of environments. We have to change the culture of schools. We have to change what it means and looks like to be a teacher, which isn't sit and get and deliver. It's creating learning opportunities that builds on the assets and funds of knowledge of all of your students and takes them to the next level that's partly where you know that they need to go and also partly where they want and need to go. And there's always that negotiation. And all of the list of methods and approaches that I just listed off start with that foundation, particularly when they're undertaken with a real with rich, anti-racist, anti-oppressive, culturally responsive and sustaining lens. Without those lenses, you can take the best cool magic bullet that there you think you found out there, you're going to put it into a system, and I'm going to say pathways, and you're going to say, oh, cool, pathways means Johnny's going here and Janie's going over here. Like, no, that's not what we mean by pathways, right? Or when I say things like pacing, oh, that means, oh, Johnny's a slow reader or a slow learner, so Johnny's going to be in the blue group and Janie's going to be in the yellow group. No, no, no. But pathways and pacing within rigorous and responsive and anti-racist and justice oriented PCBL become all sorts of roots and opportunities and enrichment within heterogeneous democratic classrooms and all kids get to flourish. Changes the nature of the conversation with the teacher. It changes the nature of the teacher's relationship with the community. It changes the notion of what pedagogy looks like and should look like. Classroom management gets easier. Kids come to you. They don't ask you questions about how do I get an A. They ask you how can I get better at this? How can I how can I get to this level of proficiency on this thing? Because I keep stumbling here. What what strategy should I be using to get better here? Oh my God! How good of a question is that from a student? Right? You're never going to get that with grading and ranking and sorting. You're going to Get kids who want to play the grading, ranking, and sorting game, and they want to know it because they know the trinkets are the the name of the game. We got to quit it with the trinkets and create real reading, real um, liberatory learning environments that are based on a lot of things. And I believe PCBL is a really great one because I've seen it, but it's among a whole menu of other really great options that are proven and being used around the country.
2: I'm loving this conversation. I'm absolutely loving this conversation. We got to quit it with the trinkets. Dr. Tashalis, bringing the heat, bringing the the hot fire (laughs) to use a scientific uh, academic terminology here. And I know folks are listening right now or watching this video who want to be part of this change in their own school or their own district, but they know, like I'm sure you know, that the resistance to that will be very, very, very strong, very, very, very fierce. Uh, Whenever it comes to embarking on systemic change, cultural change, whenever it comes to expanding opportunities, especially for the most marginalized, the, the resistance shows up and it shows up in a very big and strong way. And a lot of the resistance, a lot of the folks out there, you know, they, they might say that they're down for all this. This all sounds fantastic, but- my kid is super advanced, and when my kid was in the math in their math class um, with the previous teacher, they weren't learning nothing. and And I love where they're at now. I don't want my kid to have to um, be. I don't want their education to be quote unquote watered down for the sake of somebody else. And you know, we hear all those arguments. I'm sure you're very familiar with all those arguments. So, how do you advise schools and districts that wish to get started and embark on this journey of of all that you've discussed in terms of of getting <laughs> getting rid of the trinkets and and getting rid of these uh, inequitable systems? Um, how does how does one get started in today's context in a, in their own school or their own district?
0: One is um, prepare for the backlash because it's coming, because it always does um, for as long as we have been a nation and as long as we have tried to educate, quote unquote, all of our students. And I'm not sure we're still a nation that it that is fully committed to educating all of our students. I think that's the reason why tracking exists. See my previous points. Um, But as long as we continue to try to do that, there will be forces and commitments and communities that want to make sure that schools are designed to secure advantage for some. And schools are designed that way, they're perfectly designed to yield the outcomes that they produce. That's why if we want to change the outcomes, we have to change the design. And I'm borrowing from Tony Bryke and the Carnegie Institute and his learning to improve rationale there, which has a really great outline for what continuous improvement can look like in schools, particularly when it's justice oriented. And there are some very specific things that I would suggest. One is prepare for the backlash because it always happens. It happened in Brown v. Board. It happens when we see uprisings with Lemon Grove in San Diego. And when we see the student walkouts with the uh, Chicana rights that in the 60s and 70s. And it happens whenever we see situations where the system is trying to live out the rhetoric that we're actually trying to reach and teach all kids. And how do we do that we will position site and district leaders who have the expertise, who have the fortitude and have the spine to stand up to disinformation and racism. And we put people and elect people onto school boards to make sure that they're there to basically serve as an umbrella for superintendents when they're brave enough to go there. And then we get impacted parents um, to get mobilized and we use evidence and research to do that. And then we have enough people who are in positions of power that they won't cave in when they're, for, when they're faced with the backlash. And they won't move to the middle in order to appease a few people who are basically uh, entertaining a supremacist orientation to what schools should be. And let me just give you like a thought, thought experiment about that. Like, you know, imagine, imagine if a school established an extra special track for some kids that offered a host of extra resources and opportunities, really robust mentoring and real world experiences, extra field trips, the best and most experienced teachers, not the new ones right out of teacher education, but the ones who've really proven that they know how to run a good classroom and kids are inspired in those spaces. They use the most rigorous forms of classroom instruction and the highest regarded materials and curricula. And it's only the kids, the only kids who are allowed into that track are kids who have demonstrated that they can speak at least two languages, that they identify as multicultural, which, as we know through research and science, actually creates a more sophisticated neurobiological structure in the brain and allows more sophisticated and competent and complicated thinking processes to come more quickly versus those who are monocultural. So there's good scientific reasons why we would prioritize multilingual students and those who are multicultural. Um, And those kids were also skilled at a narrow set of very clear skills and were testing for them, such as creativity, collaboration, um, um, the ability to solve problems. And they were measured on a test that was built only by black and brown people and administered to students in the third grade. Okay, And students in this track were nominated for being considered for taking that test for all this cool stuff only by black and brown or almost exclusive by black and brown teachers. Now, would white upper middle class parents claim that this gifted kind of program was unfair, discriminatory and harmful to their kids? You damn right they would be. They'd be out of their minds that that program was exclusionary, unfair and reverse racism and all of that. And yet that's exactly what we have. So, we need to do a better job at messaging in diverse communities and even in white dominant communities about what we're actually doing and show the evidence that taking away GATE does not harm the highest performing students when acceleration enrichment opportunities are provided for everyone. And I would push people to go to the statutes in your state, look at what it says about gifted and talented education. Almost without exception across the United States, it says that gifted and talented services shall be provided for identified students and that districts have to do that identification process and it's up to them. It does not say that those programs have to be provided exclusively or that they have to be exclusionary. It says that they have to be provided. Much like special education and the movement for full inclusion, there's there's no reason legally why we can't offer those programs for everyone, why someone couldn't be enriched and accelerated, no matter what their background is and what their interests may be, because they're put in a heterogeneous classroom where those opportunities are provided for all. How do we get teachers there? That's professional development. That's research. That's bold leadership. Now, I'm saying all of this, and I have to say the little devil on my shoulder is reminding me right now, yeah, Toshalis, but you don't really trust institutions, do you? And and I don't. Um, I particularly don't trust dominant institutions and schools are one of them. And so I have to say, I have the greatest hope for making this change, not by waiting around for what is largely a set of White dominant teachers, white dominant administrators who are committed to tracking because it benefited them. They liked school. They at school worked for them. If they were identified as that, they went in and did. I know what I was a gifted and talented teacher. I got the extra special sauce because I thought I was the extra special sauce. And then I woke up and looked at the fact that I was teaching all the white kids near UC Santa Barbara and the Asian kids who were all sons and daughters of professors and in working in the defense industry and all of Of the brown and poor and lower socioeconomic and emerging bilingual kids were at the other end of the school being taught by brand new teachers getting uh, being churning through every two years when a new recruit would come in and get burned out and leave right i was part of that system so we need to change some of that system but we can't can't convince ourselves that it's going to work unless we uh, mobilize parents and mobilize students student walkouts are very effective when they're done in a nonviolent way and they use the media really effective. Teachers, or excuse me, parents that form their own t- students, union, or t- excuse me, family unions or parent unions, not the PTA, PTA typically is not a very radical organization. It's often very moderating organization, typically not very, and there's lots of scholarship about this. But when they form their own parent union and agitate for changes and change the political winds so that the politicians who are trustees and the politicians who are superintendents realize that it's no longer comfortable for them to continue to say, we believe in the all kids and rhetoric about this and equity about that, but they don't actually make any changes. We have to mobilize parents, we have to mobilize students to make it uncomfortable for people to continue with the status quo. And then one last point, we have to recognize that for those who think that taking away gate means that you're going to be ruining their kids' lives, we have to supply evidence that that's not the case, and it's out there. There's plenty of that to show that. And we also need to make the claim all the time that equity always feels like theft to those who are accustomed to unearned advantage. If we're not able to have tough conversations in communities about how we participate in racist and oppressive systems and move people along into that greater awareness and greater commitments to equity and justice, then no matter how much we mobilize, we're going to be coming up against that brick wall of white entitlement and white fragility that will keep us from ever making those changes. So... Um, it's a, it's a chore. It can be done. It has been done. Uh, uh, Burris has written about it in her book, uh, detracking for equity. And she's got multiple articles about there. Kevin Wellner, Daniel Lozen have written about it. Jeannie Oakes has written about it. And there's lots of communities around the country who have successfully detracked either portions of their school or all of their school. Um, it can be done. Well, uh, Dr.
1: Eric Toshalis, you've given us a tremendous amount to think about today. And I think uh, as, an, as an evangelist for the cause, you, uh, <laughs> you made a great case today. I think uh, I still have lots of questions and stuff I'd love to you know, dig in deeper with you. So I think that just means at some point we'll have to have you back for, uh, for another <laughs> conversation. But uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, today. We really appreciated having you here on All the Above.
0: Guys, um, it's an honor to be part of the conversation with you. And again, huge props for continuing to push the envelope and inform communities and take what's been given to you and do really beautiful things with it. I can't wait to hear what you guys do next. And um, yeah, uh, welcome the invitation to come back anytime. And um, thanks for having me on.
1: All right. Uh, Dr. Eric Toshalis will have some links below, everybody, for uh, some of Dr. Toshalis's writings. uh, If you'd like to learn more about what he uh, is writing about and is up to in his exciting work. That's it for today's seminar, folks. Thanks for joining us. But stick around. Next up is today's class dismissed. All right, folks, we've come to that time in our episode where we like to pause for a moment, step back, do a little uh, reflecting and share some love and send some flowers to people out there doing great things in the world of education. It's our class dismissed. We always end our episode this way. And uh, man, well, what good news do we have to celebrate today?
2: Yeah, well, we have a pretty good story coming out of the uh, world's number one Public university, Jeff. I'm not sure if you're familiar (laughs) with the uh, number one public university in the world, uh,
1: UC Berkeley. Is that is that what we got? Uh, No, they Uh, used to be for many years, and they rubbed it in our face
2: for a long time. But no, they're number two now. Um, (laughs) Number one public university in the world, of course, being UCLA, uh, University of California, Los Angeles. And I remember when I was an undergrad student there, there were different things that people would say about the acronym UCLA and what it actually stood for. One of those was under construction literally always because always (laughs) there's construction going on. Uh, And this story is the culmination of years of construction at UCLA, which has now provided the opportunity for UCLA to become the first campus in the University of California system to guarantee housing for students for four years. All right, now when I was an undergrad at UCLA, You got two years. Like you had two years in the dorms, then you had to find somewhere else to live because there was no room for you because incoming freshmen uh, obviously coming in. So it was like two years and then you are on your own. And for those who aren't familiar, UCLA is not located in a um, cheap area. Like it's expensive housing around UCLA. To the north of UCLA, like right across the street to the north is Bel Air. uh, To the East of UCLA is Beverly Hills, to the west is Brentwood, and to the south is just the rest of West LA, which is a pretty high-priced area. So uh, UCLA has long had housing challenges, and after years and years of construction on any available spot of land that they had, UCLA now has enough dorms, enough beds for all of its students, incoming freshmen to be able to stay in campus housing for all four years and for transfer students to remain in campus housing for two years. Now, it's not free housing. I wish it was and it should be. It's not free housing though, Um, but it is on average about 30% below market rates. So it's more affordable or closer to, closer in the direction of affordable, let's put it that way. It's closer in the direction of affordable than the off-campus uh, apartments around there and all that. Now I lived in an off-campus apartment with hell of roommates to try to <laughs> try to collectively make that rent. And it was fun, good times, but I am happy for incoming uh, UCLA Bruins who now don't have the pressure of having to find a place after the two years, um, which is what me and my friends had. So yeah, pretty good.
1: Yeah. Now I, I love this story, Manuel, and I think uh, we actually need to do much, much more of this kind of thing across our higher ed system. I would even argue in you know in the two year context to really think about investing in campus based housing um, as a part of what is an ingredient of success for students at the at the higher ed level. So, props to UCLA for making this happen. Um, a little late in the game, perhaps, because uh, you know Dr. Rustin didn't get didn't get to, didn't get to uh, take advantage of this, but. Um, Better late than never, I suppose, and so real happy for the for the students at UCLA to get to get a little bit of relief from those crazy West Side prices, man. This was wild out there, uh, the rental market. So um, congrats to them.
2: Yeah, for sure, it is wild out there. For sure. And for those, you know, some some folks might be listening or watching who went to schools elsewhere that just had plenty of space to build plenty of housing for their students. Um, yeah, that's not UCLA's case. Highly constrained, like I said, geographically by the areas around it. And I think it's also the smallest UC, acreage-wise. So if they could do it, I think the rest of the UCs and Cal States could probably do it as well. So hopefully we see some movement in that direction. But that is that, folks. All right, folks, it's been a fantastic- episode chock full of stories about education funding, juvenile schools, uh, detracking, campus housing, all of that here in one episode of all the above. Shout out to those of you who are still listening. And if you have not yet given that thumbs up or that five-star review, um, we will very, very much appreciate it. And as always, aotashow.com has all of the things, all of the links, all the past episodes, all the extras, um, how you can support all that good stuff. And also beneath this, this episode, you can see all the links to today's stories and uh, links to check out more from our guests and all of that. All right. All that for y'all because we love y'all AOTA family. All right. So we'll see you next week.